Okay, wonderful. Welcome. This is the second class in a series on Christian ethics that we're having here more or less once a month. And the topic for tonight is a very important one for ethics. It's the topic of freedom, the nature of freedom. And perhaps the first thing to mention is we won't really get into arguments of whether or not the human being is truly free, although that's something that people debate. I have a good friend, Father Steve Brock, who's a very good philosopher, who's got a talk on this on, um, I think, the Thomistic Institute podcast, or one of those podcasts. And the title of the talk is, Is Freedom an Illusion? Right? We won't go there. Um, what I'll do is just tell you what Thomas Aquinas says, which is basically he says that if we're not free, then the whole field of morality or ethics doesn't make any sense at all. And so there's no point to moral discourse, whether exhortation, encouraging someone to be better, reward or punishment, if we can't be held responsible for our actions, at least to some degree, right, to some extent. There'd be no point to rewarding people for good behavior, praising them for good behavior, or punishing them or shaming them for bad behavior if they weren't free and accountable. Now, you might say, well, I do that to my dog and he's not free, but that's simply conditioning, right? And so if your dog, you know, God forbid, bites someone and, you know, really hurts them, well, you might put your dog down, but it's not like, you don't think your dog is evil. You just think he was a bad dog, right? Not a bad person, right? So it's not like he knew better. He just had a lapse or something wrong with him. Whereas with, the, with, with people, right, we assume that there's at least some degree of responsibility for their actions. Otherwise, we wouldn't reward them or punish them and say things like, well, you should have known better or assume that they did know what they were doing and still did something wrong or that they used their freedom well and did something right, and then they're praised and rewarded. Okay, so there is freedom. So the focus of our talk tonight, as the title indicates, is to talk about different dimensions or senses of the word freedom. And we can start with freedom of choice. I'm going to make six points, or cover six different topics. And the first one is freedom of choice. This is the most... I think, popular sense of the word freedom. And freedom of choice is basically when we're free to choose between options of action or options of objects to, to select. I'm free to do this or not to do it. I'm free to do this thing with my time or to do that other thing. I'm free to obtain this material thing or this other thing, to pursue this course of action or that other one. I like to call this supermarket freedom, <laughs> right? If you go to the cereal aisle, you have all sorts of options, right? You can buy Wheaties, Lucky Charms, Life, Cocoa Puffs, etc., etc., etc. What's interesting about that uh, freedom of choice for that supermarket example is that the options only really exist as options of choice when you've decided previously or beforehand that some goal is worth pursuing. 
So before you choose between options, you, before you exercise your freedom of choice, you've already judged, maybe subconsciously, that something is good for you, that you want to achieve or acquire, do or enjoy something. You have some goal or end. And the options and the freedom of choice is only in play because you've got this further goal or end. So therefore, you don't just like find yourself in the cereal aisle. You want cereal. And then you go and say, okay, which kind of cereal do I want? If something is absolutely necessary, there's no choice. Right? It's like, if, if I want to live, I have to breathe. And so I only choose not to breathe for, in very specific, strange circumstances. Um, temporary, hopefully. <laughs> right? Um, if there's only one option, right, given that you want something, there's no freedom of choice. You wouldn't say you're not free. But there's no choice there. That, that mode of freedom is not lived. And so you still might eat cereal freely, even if you couldn't choose what brand of cereal you, um, you're eating, right? Now, that said, of course, if you decide not to eat breakfast... You, you don't even worry about which, what kind of cereal. You don't even go to the aisle, right? You're not going to, those choices don't exist for you. Now, why would you decide not to eat breakfast? Well, you might think, well, health is important. Someone told me skipping breakfast is an easy way to uh, lose weight. Okay, why is losing weight important? Well, because these studies tell me that if I'm overweight, right, at least these risk factors, or I want to look better, or athletic performance, whatever, right? And so all of our choices are kind of embedded. Freedom of choice is always embedded, as we just saw. Right, options here are for the sake of some further goal, right? But then that goal might be for the sake of some further goal at a higher level, right? G1 or G2 or whatever you want to say. Uh, Aristotle and Aquinas say this type of thing can't keep going forever, right? So if you get to something like health and then you ask yourself, well, why do I want to be healthy? You don't get very far after that. Because health is just constitutive of a good life as such. And so we all kind of naturally, Aristotle and Aquinas would say, we all naturally want well-being or we want happiness. And there are certain goals that are very close to well-being or happiness, like being alive. (laughs) Um, Obviously, that gets complicated when you think about eternal life as Christians. So sometimes even being alive in this world is not an ultimate good for happiness, right? It has to be sacrificed for the, for the uh, fullness of life in the, next, in the next world, okay? Martyrs and, and things like this. Interesting examples of freedom of choice and, and how it kind of maps onto life as such would be something like what high school girls or boys go through, right? What college should I go to? How do you make that choice? Well, first of all, it's based on another, another desire, right? I want to go to college. Somehow this is part of the good life for me. Now, it might not be, right? Not everyone has to go to college. I like to tease girls. I say, why are you going to college? Just learn how to code. <laughs> and you'll never, you know, you'll never, you know, unless something really bad happens, which even if, if something really bad happens, college won't matter either. Um, <laughs> right? Learn how to code, and you'll never be out of a job, right? And so, 
Maybe I shouldn't tell this to a group of parents here at Montrose. I'm, like, I'm always trying to do things to get me fired. I don't know. It never seems to work. My boss is here. I'm getting nervous. She's not, she's not laughing. I don't know. All right, I'll see you guys later. No. <laughs> right, college might not be for everyone, clearly. And so the decision, okay, what kind of university do I want to go to is based on a certain vision of life and what you're expecting out of it, right? A certain vision of well-being and flourishing in life. Who should I marry? Well, that's based on, well, I think I should get married, right? And that's a good question. Do I? What kind of life is the right one for me? And so some goals are chosen, right? So if you're choosing between colleges, right? I don't know, Boston College, Harvard, the great University of Dallas. (laughs) As a goal to a college education, right? Well, some goals are chosen, right? College education versus just coding. hmm? The University of YouTube. Uh, Where you can learn that. But maybe not, right? Maybe you've never reflected on it because no one's ever brought it up and you're just in this culture where uh, college is just a given, right? Obvious, right? Um, so I think as we live our life, it's, it's good for us if we want to exercise our freedom of choice well to make as many of these higher level um, background goals explicit, And that is very important for the moral life. It's like, what kind of person am I striving to be? What are my highest ideals? When push comes to shove, what is my vision of a good life? And what does my happiness consist? Because once you have that, and if you're Christian, it's something like God, uh, therefore my prayer life, my sacramental life, my love and service to others. Therefore, of course, my family relationships, I'm always trying to be a better husband or a better wife, a better parent, my work. And so, um, but those are kind of, two are kind of hierarchically um, structured, right? God is more important than anything else for a Christian. Your family is more important than anyone else besides God, right? In the Christian order of charity. Um, and and then you think about the ideals so, how do I want to be for God? How do I want to be for others? And that'll shape, that'll shake down into, you know, what kind of cereal you buy. <laughs> maybe not, con- <laughs> maybe not consciously, but it, but it affects everything. Because, you know, why do I get out of bed in the morning? And then why do I have breakfast or not have breakfast? Well, ultimately it leads to because I want to be this kind of person for God or for others. Okay. So the more you can make that, um, conscious as opposed to just, um, subconscious or taken for granted, the more you can freely shape your life at the highest level and therefore also at the lowest levels. Whereas the more we don't reflect at a high level of the kind of person we want to be or what happiness consists in or what the good life consists of, well, then we get, we get into like uh, a, a more of a possibility of a bifurcated life. Because we take for granted, okay, my Christian side, this is telling me heaven is the most important and charity is the most important. But I have this other way of thinking, which is more worldly, and that's telling me that my reputation is more important 
or rest is more important, or entertainment is more important, or pleasure is more important. And so you can have like undisclosed ends that are shaping your life that really don't, you know, fit together, right? And so reflection on what are my ends, what are shaping my choices, what's really important, gives you a chance to use your freedom to kind of give you a kind of unity of life, a coherency to your life based on the truth. All right. That was a lot of words strung together. Any questions so far? <laughs> so far. I didn't mean to say all that yet. It just kind of happened. Uh, any questions so far? Great. Okay. All right. So that's freedom of choice, which is interesting because people are really into it. I don't need to be free, keep my options open. But they don't realize many times that their options are actually... Um, are actually shaped by very few things at the top of the chain, right? Or at the top of the hierarchy. All right. Then we can talk about something like freedom from. So freedom of choice clearly isn't the only dimension of, uh, of freedom. We can say I'm free because I'm free to choose, but we can also say I'm free, I'm acting freely because I'm not being coerced or I'm not being forced to do something. I'm doing this because I want to do it. I'm doing this of my own free volition, right? This is something voluntary. This is freedom as the voluntary, which is kind of like the core of Aristotle's analysis of freedom in the, um, in the ethics. What kinds of coercion are there? Well, there are two basic kinds. There's different forms of external coercion. So that would be something like violence, intimidation, blackmail, torture, Right, where some sort of external agent puts pressure on you to force you to act or choose or think a certain way. Okay. Force you to do something that you usually wouldn't without that pressure. Then there's internal coercion, right? That could be things like our own emotions, right? Fears, insecurities, strong passions. All of those can act as a kind of limit on our freedom. And so if you act out of anger, right, in a moment of anger, well, if that passion hadn't been there, even though the circumstances be the same, you wouldn't have done it. And that's why you have remorse. It's like, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I was really mad. I shouldn't have said that. Right? Or I shouldn't have punched you in the face or whatever. Um, and so in the moment, we have the experience that we weren't really fully free because the passion or because the emotion was so strong. And then once we regain our, our, our peace, we reflect on it and we're like, oh, that was, yeah, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have chosen that. Which kind of implies that in the absence of that emotion, we would have acted differently, right? More justly or more, um, in a more controlled manner. And this is very important that we, um, come to grips with this because even these higher goals can kind of, well, definitely, can be undermined by a lack of um, by a lack of freedom from, right, or by too much coercion, internal coercion. So it's like I would love to be an actor and to join the theater club, but this tremendous stage fright keeps me from from it. And so unless someone says no, I need to I need to find a way to come overcome this fright this fear of public speaking, they might really limit their career or their, um, or their leisure activities, their possibility of being an actor in, in the public sphere. And different, not, not just a stage actor, but a, uh, an agent in the public sphere. 
uh, clearly it's something like anger too if that's not gotten under control well, it can it can really do damage to those high ideals of what constitutes a good life love of others our relationships temperance same thing right a strong passion i really wanted to stop eating the fried chicken but it was so good i ate the whole bucket right i'm sorry i don't know what got into me right and it took 10 minutes. All right. Um, so those are some, so those are some uh, coercive elements, you could say, that limit our voluntariness. External ones, internal ones. Another one that's internal, which is very important and interesting, is ignorance. So one thing is to say, if I hadn't been so angry, I wouldn't have done that. And so I, I, need, I know I need to learn how to control my anger. Another thing is to say, if I knew that was illegal... Right, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done that, or if I knew it was immoral, right, I wouldn't have done that. And so there, too, ignorance takes away some of the freedom to choose otherwise, because had you known, you would have chosen differently. And that's very important because um, obviously there's levels of knowledge of the moral law, and so when you look at others and say, "How can they do that?" Well. They might be culpable. They might know that it's wrong and do it anyway. We know that we've done that with different things. But they might not. Right? Maybe they're just, maybe they've been raised by wolves or the moral equivalent, right? And that happens, right? There's a lot of people who are raised with a very low threshold of morality and perhaps their own personal experience. Their passions have been shaped in a way that's vicious as opposed to virtuous. This is why education is so important. Um, you know, Aristotle talks about this. Um, basically, before you have the use of reason, you have to feel right about morality with your, with your feelings, with your instincts, uh, before you can think about it rightly. And what does that take? It takes someone else taking the place of your reason and saying, hey, that's bad, that's bad, right? that's shameful, this is good. And so if you grow up in an in a environment or a culture that's morally deficient or corrupt, which in many ways ours is, we have some good things too, um, it can be hard to get to maturity or adolescence and know how to think morally because you haven't been used to feeling morally in the right way. All right. Um, so ignorance is another, in a sneaky way, it doesn't seem like coercion, but it does limit freedom. This is why moral virtue is so important for, um, for freedom, right? Moral virtues make us freer, especially the moral virtues that, um, that help us regulate and moderate our desires. Unless we learn how to moderate and regulate and act in the face of our fears or our anger or our passions, we're never truly free. Right? We're always pushed around by our emotional state. And our emotional state is not something that's directly under our power. And so the point of the moral virtues, especially the internal ones, fortitude, temperance, prudence, which is thinking well about how to act, which is the relationship of action to the truth, are super important for the degree of our, of our internal freedom, right? Freedom from disordered emotions and freedom from ignorance, okay? 
otherwise we're just, you know, we're, we're kind of just at the, we're at the beck and call of whatever our subjective emotional state happens to be. And if you never get on top of that because you're trying to cultivate virtue, well, then you're going to be a very weak moral agent. Anytime I'm angry, I lose my peace, I lose my charity. Anytime I want to eat too much, well, that's what I do, I eat too much. Anytime I'm afraid, I run away from challenges. Um, and even though you might have the right moral ideas, I need to act like this or like that or like that, you're just too weak emotionally to do it. Right? Your freedom is hampered by your lack of virtue. Good. Any questions so far? All right. Um, freedom four. This is a very interesting one. It kind of relates back up to this one. This basically is a question. Okay. What is our freedom for? What's the point of being free? And to cut to the chase, um, <laughs> freedom is for pursuing true goods. All right. And so freedom for is clearly related to freedom of choice, but it's not just freedom of choice. Because freedom of choice kind of abstracts from the value of the ends, right? You can say, am I free to choose bad goals or good goals? You're free to choose bad goals or good goals, right? If not, no one would be bad. Do I want to be a criminal or a teacher? Well, I could say, yeah, I'd rather be a criminal than a teacher because, you know, it's more fun or I'll make more money. Um, and then once you have that goal, I want to be a criminal. Well, am I going to rob banks or am I going to extort people or am I going to, you know, be a, I don't know, a gang leader, right? So you kind of like have the same structure. I want a job. Which college do I go to? Okay. I want to be a really bad person. You know, what's my, what's, what's my, what's the means that, to that end? Um, and so freedom of choice would exist there, but it would be totally disordered. And so this gives rise to another question is, what am I truly free for? What's the point of my freedom of choice? And basically the answer is freedom for is freedom to choose what is objectively and truly good. Freedom of choice and freedom from coercion exist to enable us to do good freely because we know it's good because we want to. And so we could say that these two are kind of in service of the third one, right? That we're, we have freedom of choice and we have freedom from any sort of coercion. Why? So that we're free to choose what is truly good. Because viewed in themselves, right, freedom of choice and freedom from coercion could also be applied to bad ends and make you a bad person. And that would be a that would be a bad thing. So you could say, oh, did you murder that person? Were you coerced to murder that person? No, I totally wanted to do it, right? And so you could be freedom from, you could have freedom from all sorts of fears or, you know, uh, threats from the outside and still do something that's terribly wrong um, with, that, with that lack of coercion, okay? Now this gets to charity. Um, St. Augustine has this wonderful homily on charity where it's one of his most famous quotes he says love and do what you will now some people when they translate that they think it's too open and so they write in love god and do what you will but actually the original quote is love and do what you will right love and do whatever you want and that's a great um, formulation of freedom for right love 
as long as you're choosing what's truly good, you're loving God and others, yourself, love, and do what you will. Right? If you have the right ultimate goal, you're not gonna get you're not gonna go too far off with your with your means, right? Or the specific choices to get you there. This is very important in our day and age that we that we realize that freedom is not um, freedom is not absolute. And so in very influential philosophies, you know, nihilistic philosophy or relativism, there's this there's this idea that we have to create value with our freedom. We have to create the good. That that, you know, we're not just beings who see the good and then choose it freely, but we're beings that have to actually um, create almost ex nihilo out of nothing value or goodness. That's Nietzschean, right? It's very uh, subjectivist. And I think that's that, that's just not um, accurate, right? Uh, because then our freedom would become arbitrary, right? And very few people are creative. No one's really creative enough, enough to create their own values, right? Everything's kind of borrowed in the end. Um, so I like to think of it like this. Think of a taxi driver, right, with nowhere to go. If a taxi driver's there and he's got no customers yet, well, he's in his car, and in one sense, he's completely free. He's got total freedom of choice. He can go anywhere he wants. And he's not coerced at all. Right? No one's telling him what to do. But once he has a customer, okay, his focus gets narrowed. I need to go here. And so in a certain sense, he's no longer as free. His options are limited. And in another sense, his freedom from is a little bit restricted too because he's coerced by the demands of the other person, of the customer. But now his now his day is useful, right? It's got a point. It's got a purpose. It's it's um, it's got a goal. And so I think unless we unless we really see freedom of choice and uh, freedom from in the service of freedom for, we're kind of like the taxi driver before he gets the customer. And a lot of people live this way for a long time, right? They're, people are afraid of commitment because they've seen other commitments be destroyed or, or people have not, you know, been committed to them. Um, people like to keep their options open. But even keeping your options open, right? If you keep your options open, it means you, you uh, run the risk of never being committed to a, to a high goal, right? And never having those high standards of, I'm committed to God in a vocation. I'm committed to others in my family life. I'm committed to this profession. And so even keeping your option op- options open actually limits your options, all right? Um, and so that's the fourth point, right? Freedom and commitment. I always spell commitment wrong. Is that one P or two T's? One P? One, one two. Does committee have two T's? One <laughs> <laughs> This is the problem with our... You know, you spend half your life without spell check, and then you spend half your life with, with spell check, and then you're in trouble, you know? Uh, 
And so this is a this is a problem that you know if we if we value this too much in itself at our range of options, and if we misunderstand uh, lack of coercion, we become afraid of commitment because we start to think that commitment is a kind of coercion, which it can kind of feel like or look like if you think about it, <laughs> right? And so the classical example is. Um, is a mother, right? Is a mother, is a mother free not to feed her children? Well, technically, yes, right? She can decide, well, ah, you know, I'm tired, <laughs> right? Uh, this baby eats every day. Can't you take a day off eating, you know? I mean, uh, you know, it's a good show on, right? Technically, yes, she's free to make that choice to say there's some thing that will make me happier than feeding, uh, than feeding this baby who's starving. And unfortunately, some people make that choice, right? There is abuse and neglect. But for a good mother, right, she doesn't really experience that as a choice, even though she's free to do the opposite. She experiences it as something she has to do. But you wouldn't say she doesn't, she does it, um, under coercion. It's just part of who she is and part of what she's taken on in this, in this vocation. And so in a way, it looks like coercion, but it's really not, even though she doesn't experience it as like having another choice, right? This is the necessity of love and love is always free. And so here we get into a little bit like conflicts of happiness, right? If we think of happiness as a feeling, primarily, or as a pleasure, primarily, versus the overall result of a good life, good commitments, good choices, good habits, the good use of freedom, well, then we get into this conflict between, um, right, freedom of choice, freedom from coercion and the freedom for, right? The freedom of love. And that's just life. Sometimes there is going to be that conflict, right? Because it's hard to, it's hard to stick with commitments in marriage, at work, in a vocation, in growing in virtue, right? There are moments in which the immediate experience of it, all things considered, would not be chosen, right? Would I choose, like, if I just lived in a vacuum, would I choose to feel uh, lonely or neglected or sad or tired. No, right, in a vacuum. But your life doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It exists within this framework of commitments to people and to God, and that's who you are. And unless you, unless you, unless you see that those moments and seasons of difficulty, which you wouldn't choose if you, if you could choose them like outside of your life, are part of your life and are leading to something good and a part of your highest ideals, well, then you're going to more and more feel this tension, right, between what you want and what you want, if that makes any sense, right? How you want to feel and who you want to be, right? And so you have to just be patient with those things, learn how to, how to cope with them, learn how to alleviate them, but alleviate them in a way that's consistent with your higher goals of true freedom, right? The life you want to live, the commitments you've taken on, right? And so I think, uh, in general, we're bad at this as a culture. 
And we need to be, we need to be better. Okay. What else should I say about that? Ah, great story. John Paul II. I love this story. John Paul II was once asked by a journalist, Holy Father, what do you do with your free time? And so you laugh, right? And so why, you're probably laughing because you're thinking the typical, like, martyr answer, right? My free time, ha, ha, ha. You know, I am the leader of, uh, you know, billions of Catholics. I have all this responsibility. I don't have any free time, right? Is that, is that why you laughed? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a good laugh because that's, that's one way he could have answered that question, right? Another way he could have answered that question is to kind of like pull the Renaissance man card on people. John Paul II skied, hiked mountains, did philosophy, wrote poetry. You know, he's just an incredible guy. So he could have said, well, in my free time, I like to uh, ski and hike mountains and write poetry. And if I'm feeling good, I do them all at the same time, you know? Um, <laughs> But his answer was amazing, right? What he said was, what he said was, all my time is free time. Right? All my time is free. Because he's taken total responsibility for his life. And so even though he's got things that are put on him that, okay, if he could choose in a vacuum, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have to deal with this person or with, you know, the Soviet Union or with all the things that he had to, you know, deal with. Um, but he accepted it all, right? That this is who I am. This is, this is, this is the things I've taken on or the things that God has asked me to take on. And I take responsibility for it, right? So whether it's a good day or a bad day, something I like or I don't like, it's all free. Another great example of that is, um, I don't know if this really, if he really said this, but, um, now I don't have his name. Mm, I got his name in another file. Franz. It's either Franz or Hans. That sounds like a, <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds oh, like that sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. Exactly. Yeah. Woo! All right, that went downhill real fast. Um, I'll find his name. Anyone know his name? Jagerstatter, blessed Franz, I think. Jagerstatter. He was an Austrian. You guys don't know the story. Huh? Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, there was a movie made about him. It's called The Hidden Life by the famous director. Now I'm blanking on his name, too. No, the director wasn't Hans. But this guy, I think it's Franz. This is, this is really embarrassing, you know? Uh, Hold on, hold on. No, it's Jagerstatter. That's his last name. Franz. No, squirt, no, I'm not talking about the act, um, the director anymore. <laughs> the director did the Tree of Life. He's a famous director. Terence Malik. Malik, right? Terence Malik. Okay. He has a movie called The Hidden Life about the. It's about the life of this Franz Jagerstatter. Franz Jagerstatter was beatified by Benedict the Sixteenth. And his story is fascinating, right? He was a simple guy. He was a farmer. He had a wife. He had a couple daughters. It's a great movie. Um, and he refuses to serve in the, in the Nazi army and take a kind of oath of uh, allegiance to Hitler. He's a conscientious objector. 
And so um, he's arrested, and even like his bishop and his and his parish priest said, "Look, you can do this. It's not you know, it's not a, you know, they're going to make you a medic. You're not going to fight for Hitler. You'll just help." Right? And he, but he felt in this consciousness, no, "I can't do this." And so, of course, he gets arrested, and eventually he gets beheaded. Um, there's a scene in the movie where um, his captors are trying to get him to capitulate. They're like, "Look, it's not worth it. You know, you can you can live." You can, you'll be free. If you just sign this, you'll be free. And in the movie, at least, I don't know if this happened in real life, they say, you'll be free if you just sign this. And he says, but I'm already free. And a beautiful example, I think, of this um, idea of the, the limitation of our freedom in real life and the importance of taking responsibility for it and living our commitments. That leads us to what we call interior freedom, right? So there are situations in which your freedom of choice and even your freedom from right, are severely limited. And so Franz Jagastard, he couldn't, he couldn't choose like what kind of cereal he would have. For, <laughs> right? He couldn't even choose, in certain sense, he couldn't even choose uh, whether he was going to live or die, he could just kind of accept, well, he could choose that, right? But not without violating his conscience. And so what was he free to do? He was free to accept or not interiorly his fate, right? God's, uh, God's plan for him. And that's called interior freedom. Viktor Frankl has this wonderful, um, quote in, uh, in Man's Search for Meaning. Victor Frankl was a psychiatrist who also was um, lived in the time of World War II. He ended up in the concentration camp. Um, he was separated from his family, his wife. All of his family died in, in the Holocaust. Um, but he had this, he had this reason to live, which obviously helped to keep him alive, also God's providence, because even if you have a reason to live, they can still kill you. Um, and his reason to live was to write his work, right? It was, it was to write his manuscript. And uh, his experience there kind of reaffirmed what he was already thinking about, the importance of meaning in life. And he came to the conclusion that those who found meaning or accepted some way their situation, right? The, the victims of the Holocaust, right? The people who are still the survivors and the people in the, in the concentration camp. Well, they lived longer, right? Because they didn't give up hope. And so this is one of his quotes, which is very important. He says, everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way, right? Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And I think that's kind of concretized or exemplified both in John Paul II's quote, right? I'm always, you know, all my time is free time. And in the quote from the movie, in the life of, in the hidden life of uh, Franz Jagerstatter, where he says, I'm already free. And here it's it's hard because you know we we live in such an affluent time and and there's such an emphasis on freedom of choice and freedom from coercion that if we're not careful we can feel coerced without really being coerced. 
And this comes from a kind of immature view of life where we never grow up and take commitment seriously or accept that suffering is a part of life and it's a good part of life for growth and for love, even though it's suffering. And so, you know, you grow up watching like rom-coms or, you know, action movies and it's like, okay, there's an adventure, but everything's laughing and Bruce Willis always has a joke and, you know, after half an hour, the, the problems all disappear and everyone is happy and he 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 ha 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 and the girl's beautiful and the guy's you know uh goofy but uh dependable somehow <laughs> and um right and uh and then we start to think well, that's what life should be like beautiful people great careers fun friendships the best relationships difficulties last a half an hour and then they're wrapped up um and then when we see life as it really is well it's like oh my gosh uh, right <laughs> and so if we're not ready and 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 if we're not like living for the for the ideals that are worth suffering for and to see those sufferings as a part of our love and part of our commitment that it's also freely accepted well then yeah we get resentful we 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 um we live those things begrudgingly we're not happy and that's when people rebel and they bug out in different ways, right? They turn to drugs or alcohol. They try to change their situation in life. It's like, dude, you're 50. This, you know, <laughs> you know, this is, this is your life, you know? I mean, I get it, you know? I get it. You know, it's hard, but, you know, what are you going to, you can't just like, you know, start over. You're not, you know, you're not fooling anyone, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, so that's one problem, right? Uh, is that because we have the wrong view of happiness, we put it too much in pleasure and in, you know, kind of easy choices and easy, easy solutions. We can feel coerced by circumstances, even though we shouldn't. These are just things that, you know, we have to accept and grow through and there's all sorts of virtues you can grow in, right? Patience, learning how to be happy even though we're not everything's perfect, a deeper joy of knowing that we're being committed, a love of God, right? A prayer life can exist, right? A great love of God and learning how to, how to be happy because we're meeting God can exist in all sorts of terrible circumstances, right? The saints show us this. Um, you know, the Holocaust saints show us this. Edith Stein, Maximilian Kolbe, so that's one thing. The other thing is, it's great to know that we could also be truly coerced, right, limited by grave circumstances, and still manage to be free if we want to, or if we have the wisdom to. So we can freely consent to the, to a situation that's diff, you know, explicitly and essentially difficult to accept if we have enough perspective. And that kind of perspective really only comes with it with, I think, personally, with either a very deep sense of morality, but most of the time with a sense of the trust in God's providence. So there's all, there's some things you, I think you can only really live through well and with dignity and accepting with freedom if you have a sense that even though I can't see the reason for this, it's somehow it's part of God's plan for me because he's letting it happen. And that's the lesson of Job. It's really, you know, Jesus is a model for all of this. It's very beautiful. It's great to reflect on Jesus' freedom. 
So Jesus says things like, I only do what pleases him. It's a great line in the Gospel of John, where the Son of God made man, true God and true man, reveals to us his motivation. Why is he doing things? To please the Father. Now, if you ask them, well, does that mean you're not free? Do you, do you always have to do that? Right? I mean, you know, uh, well, it's only one thing, right? Where's the freedom of choice? Well, because he loves the Father and because that's what he, who he is, he's the Son of God, right? He knows how good the Father is. He knows how great it is to love the Father. He knows how much the Father loves him. It's the only thing he wants to do. And so, in a certain sense, it's a coercion because there's no, there's not a huge freedom of choice, even though he is free. I mean, um, he's totally free. And then he says things like, um, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me but not my will, but yours be done. And so even Jesus, uh, who is the holiest and the best person ever, had mo- had a huge moment in his life where he was like, uh, uh, right? Any way out of this, you know? But he reinforces it and accepts it and lives it freely because he trusts God or he trusts the Father. He wants to love the Father. I only do what, I only do what pleases him. So he says, if it's possible that this chalice pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. All right. And then when he describes his own passion, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. That's very important because obviously they are taking his life from him. He's not, he's not committing suicide. Right. They come and they put chains on him and they, and they, and they beat him and they accuse him falsely. They're doing all these things unto him, which are extremely bad and extremely unjust and extremely terrible and objectively terrible. They're killing God. It would be bad enough if they're just killing an innocent man, right? But they're killing God. And yet at the same time, Jesus says this, you know, all this bad stuff and it's objectively bad. It's a sin. Is part of God's plan for me. And therefore, no one takes my life from me. Right? I lay it down on my own accord. And so that's a great example of, um, you know, freedom from coercion because he's got this tremendous interior freedom even when he is being coerced. Right? That doesn't mean we go out and say, oh, you know, uh, you know, we kind of invite abuse or we don't try to get out of Right, because that's not good. We always have to live love, but we have to live love with a certain trust in God. And so, if someone if someone is hurting me, I can distance myself from them, not just for my own good, but for their good. It's bad for them to hurt me. I can try to stop them. I can try to you know get justice. But interiorly, while the hurt still lasts, it's part of God's plan for you, right? Because otherwise, it wouldn't happen. Nothing happens in the world externally or internally that is not at least permitted by God. It's not that God's doing the evil, but permitting it. And if you permits the evil to Christians and to Christ, it's because somehow it can turn to our good. Right? St. Paul says that all things work into the good for those who love God. So the freest we can be, uh, the freest we can be is to trust God with the things that we find the most difficult or the most uh, coercive. Which, again, doesn't mean just being a pacifist and not, like, you know, trying to better the world and better our situation. But internally, it means a kind of certain acceptance of things that we find very difficult because they're part of our life and part of our commitments and part of God's plan for us. Um, great, I think. 
Great that we're done, at least, right? All's well to end.